That's, that's a good thing, right? Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Daniel, for sharing. Hey, um, imagine this. It would never happen, but say God were throwing himself a birthday party or someone was throwing God a birthday party, and we we're all invited to come. Uh, what would you bring him? It's very interesting, right? Some people might, yeah, I don't know, you wrap up your presents and then you would give him, um, theoretically, you would give him maybe a song. Or we would give a bunch of money in an envelope and we'd bring that to God and say, God, here you go. Maybe others would give us um, some kind of, of currency of time and we'd put it into a box and we'd offer it to God. What would we give him? If God were to have a party and we wanted to honor him, we wanted to please him, we wanted to give him something that he valued and something that he loved. That's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks here as we looked into the passions of God. What are the things that move the heart of God? What are the things that God really wants? Because a lot of times as we've sung, a lot of times the things that we think God wants may not be the things that God really wants. So many times we think all God wants from us is a song, and as we've just sang, sung, song, a song in itself is not a song in itself is not what he really desires. It was never just about a song. So what is it that God wants? We've seen in the past few weeks that God is passionate about the salvation of souls, that people matter to God, and that he is patient with us in order that he might bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, his son. We also saw that God is passionate about his name being made known amongst the generations, that God desires for one generation to declare the beauty of God to the next generation, and for especially those who go before those who come behind, that those would, they, we would leave something behind that would be an inheritance that our next generations to come would be able to live into and grow into and see and continue to hear the great works of the character the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And then we saw last week that God's passion is not only for a group of people in one geographic area to come to know him, but he's passionate about the nations. He's passionate about the world coming to know him. Today, we're going to look into a pretty uh, famous passage of scripture from the Old Testament, Micah chapter 6. And we're going to see one of the unfamiliar passions of God to see here's another thing that God really wants, that he deeply desires from his people. And as we look into Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we will see his passion for justice and mercy. Okay, Micah, um, if you can find it, if you can't find it, look in your table of contents. There's no shame in that. Um, you can look in there because it's not a, probably the pages of Micah are not well-worn in your Bible. You can look up here as well. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is God's word through the prophet. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you answer me i brought you up out of egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery i sent moses to lead you also aaron and miriam my people remember what balak king of moab counseled and what balaam son of beor answered 
Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's word. Micah chapter 6 is a lawsuit. It is an indictment that God is making against his people, saying our relationship isn't the way that it used to be. Things used to be really good, but they're not so great anymore. And he's bringing this charge against them. He's calling the mountains to to bear witness. He's calling the peoples of the earth to to be the jury. And then he begins to bring this case in verse 3, and he says, you know what? Um, What have I done? If something is wrong with our relationship, is it something that I've done? And then he begins to talk about all of the things that he did for the people of God. He said, I brought you out of slavery from Egypt. I gave you great leaders who could lead you to where you needed to go. And I brought you into the land of promise. I I redeemed you from all of these things. Ultimately, what God is saying is if, if there's something wrong, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I have showered kindness and goodness and love and grace and poured all of that into your life. And if there's something wrong with our relationship, I don't think that is because I have broken the covenant. And then he allows the Israelites to answer. And it's almost like as you, as you read their response starting in verse 6, it's almost there's a sense of defiance. It's almost cynical. It's very defensive. And it's almost comical what they say. They say, God, what do you want? You want me to bring burnt offerings? You want me to bring sacrifices before you? Verse 7, I could bring thousands of rams if that's what you want. How about oil? You want 10,000 rivers of oil? You want that? I'll bring it. As if they really could. 10,000 rivers of oil. And then they say, what do, you, what do you want? You want my firstborn child? I'll give that up to you if that's what you want. What do you want, God? Tell me. And if they were the Spice Girls, they would say, God, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. And God responds, says, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. Verse 8, this is what I want, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what I want. And I've shown that to you. It's nothing new. Time and time again, I've shown you that this is what I really want. And so that's going to be our simple outline for today, those three thoughts. What does God want? Okay, first thing that God wants, God wants us to make what's wrong right. Right? That's what it means when he says to act justly. That's what he's saying. Take the things that are wrong and make them right. As I was thinking about this, I've... Um, expressed my fondness for this movie in the past, but since Election Day is Tuesday, I've been thinking about um, the whole presidential election thing, and there's this movie called Head of State. Anyone remember this movie came out like maybe 10 years ago or so? Okay, a few couple uh, of us remember that. Basically, uh, it's getting near election campaign time, presidential elections, and this one party, I'm not sure which party it is exactly, but in this one party, 
the presidential candidate and the vice presidential candidate both die in separate accidents. This is a comedic, it's a funny movie. Okay, so um, they both die, and so this political party, they're like doomed. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? So they're like, we realize that we're not going to win this year's election, so why don't we do this? Let's tank the election, let's forfeit it, but we need to posture ourselves so that four years later we can win. So they're gonna, they're, their plan is let's take some Joe Schmo from anywhere and let's take him, let him be right, just this likable fellow, but no chance of winning, no chance of winning, but let's use him to gain the votes of the people that we don't think we have their votes, people sitting on the fence, people who are antagonistic towards us. And so their political, their uh, presidential candidate for that year is Chris Rock. And so here's Chris Rock, and he's like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm representing the whole African-American people. I'm representing this underprivileged. I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. And his brother, Bernie Mac, says, just speak from your heart. And then he gives this one amazing speech that just rivals all the great speeches in, in, in cinematic history. But he gives a speech, and it's called, That Ain't Right. Do you guys remember this? If you've seen the movie, it's great. It's, it's inspiring. I cried during it. But he, he gets up there and he, he just starts talking about things that are not right in the world. He says, how many of you guys, I don't know, how many of you guys are uh, serving food at restaurants you can't even eat in? And he's like, that ain't right. He's like, say it together with me, everybody, that ain't right. And everybody says, that ain't right. And, and, and he says something like, how many of y'all are, are cleaning up beds in hotels that you could never afford to stay in? And people are out there like, yeah, that, that's not right. That's not right. And he's like, that ain't right. And they all yell, that ain't right. It's like, how many of y'all are working in hospitals that you can't afford to get sick in? And everybody's like, that ain't right. And this, this constant back and forth as he talks about all these things that are wrong in this world. And the response of the people is, that ain't right. And his thing is, I'm going to do whatever I can to make that which is wrong right. And in every culture, in every society, and in every generation, there are things that we look at and we say, that ain't right. In Micah's day, if you read Micah, the eight chapters of Micah, the seven chapters of Micah, you will realize very quickly that the prophet is looking at this fact that the rich continue to get richer, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself, but the rich were getting richer at the expense of the poor that they were stealing their land. They were usurping everything that was theirs. They were hijacking everything that the poor people owned, and they were breaking the backs of the poor in order for them to get richer and richer and richer. And Micah looks at that, and he says, that ain't right. Not only that, it's not just the rich, but he looked at the rest of the people of God and their culture, and he said, they're showing favoritism to these rich people. You know why? Because the rich can pay you back, but the poor cannot offer you anything, nor can they do anything to stop the injustice. And God, through Micah, is saying, that ain't right. In our culture, in our day and age, in the time that we live in, what are the things in our world that aren't right? The things that make you rise up in defiance and boil your blood and say, that's not right. Maybe it's things like racism. When we hear about, um, if you ask Joyce, she'll t Joyce Quack, she'll tell you the story about um, this uh, mother who was holding on to her two kids, two-year-old and four-year-old, and they were ripped from her arms in the storm, Hurricane Sandy on Staten Island. And she went knocking on people's doors to recruit help, but nobody would help her. And ultimately, they found the next day, she found the police, 
asked to help. They found the kids, and both of them were dead. That ain't right, but more and more as the story begins to come out, there was an article in yesterday's newspaper as I was reading it. It says the reason why she was denied help, because she was an African-American woman in a place where nobody wanted to help an African-American woman. Racism isn't right. And that's the kind of stuff that boils the blood of our father. And he says, whatever is wrong, we need to make that right. Think about oppression. I was, um, we had sent a team from, to North Korea, and they've come back. And a couple weeks ago, I was talking with one of the, the men on that team. And I asked him. I was excited to see him. I wasn't expecting to see him at church. He pops into my office. I said, hey, how was your trip? And he, was, he just said it was really hard. And, you know, some of us have been to North Korea, so I'm imagining what he's talking about. And then with, with tears, he's just like, Pastor, I don't understand. It's so sad. And it's so sad. This large man just being choked up. He said, to see children starving while we see the leaders of that country on TV, fat with big smiles on their faces, stealing the food of the people who really need it. He says, that's not right. When you hear about human rights violations, you hear about trafficking of humans, a sex slavery, you hear about in Cambodia, I, I mentioned this earlier in the year, but one of my buddies was out there, Jesus camp, singing songs at the church, all girls, a hundred of them, three years old up to 19 years old. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And as my, my buddy Kevin was just soaking this in, the lady said the hardest thing, the worst thing about this is that tonight they're going to go back into the brothels. And then she took him around the perimeter and said, see these police cars here? And so my buddy was like, well, thankfully they're here. They're like, no, no, no. You give them two, three dollars, they'll just turn the other way. And they'll let you sell these kids to people for just pennies on, on the dollar. What's the youngest? He said, three years old. Three-year-old kids. And the defenders of justice are the perpetrators of injustice. That ain't right. And what's going to happen when we get to that place 40 years later when we talk about this with our children and our grandchildren and they say, what did you do about it? In every culture, in every generation, there are things that we look at and we say, that's not right. Right? That ain't right about this world. Who's supposed to make a difference? Who's supposed to be the change? What does God's heart beat for? It says here to act justly. See, when God, when God gave this vision to the prophets, right, it, they couldn't sit still with it. To us, injustice is like an act of injustice. But to them, it is a disaster. When they think about a single act of injustice, to us, it's just an episode of something that we do. Right? We, we uh, cheat people. On our bi- on, in business, whatever it is, or, or we um, watch people get bullied at school, and that's, that's fine. We turn the other way. And, and to us, an injustice, when someone's rights are being taken from them, whether it's protection, uh, care, lo- whatever that might be, when something is taken from another person, that, that's not right. And justice is making that which is wrong right. And when the prophet saw these things, <clears throat> we see it as mere, merely an injury to a person, but they saw it as a death blow to the human race. They said, how can you sit here and watch that happen? That's what the prophets were saying. 
And so God says our call as a people of God is that we act justly to make that which is wrong right. This is the first thing that he says, uh, to act justly. The second thing that he says, to love mercy. God wants us to live lives of unexpected kindness. This word mercy, the, the Hebrew word is, is hesed. It is a huge word, something that cannot really be translated in the English language. But basically, if we could get as close as we could, it would be this, this idea of giving unexpected kindness to somebody. It's unexpected kindness. And the word that mercy is most commonly associated, there's a, there's a group of words that mercy is most commonly associated with in the Bible. Words like the poor, the oppressed, the widow, right? the um, hungry, needy, right? the outcast, the alien, the immigrant. These are the kinds of words that are used uh, in conjunction with this word mercy to show unexpected kindness. And it makes sense, right? Because unexpected kindness given to people like that is ultimately saying we are showing kindness to people who cannot repay that kindness to you. That's what mercy is, to look at people and to realize that whoever they are, I can show kindness to them and to the society at large, that is unexpected. They look at that as strange. They look at that as weird. How can that person be showing love and kindness and a favor to somebody like that? But not only when he, when he says to love mercy, it's not only to, it's not, he's not talking about random acts of kindness. We hear that phrase a lot, don't we? Like, let's go downtown and somebody's parking meter is expired. Let's go fill it. Or let's make a, um, sandwiches one day and let's pass them out to people. He's not talking about random acts of kindness like that. He's talking about a lifestyle of continual kindness so that we become defined by this. So that when people look at a person who's following the heartbeat of Micah 6.8, it's not that, hey, um, every now and then they do these nice things for people who don't deserve it. But we become defined as a people who are showing unexpected kindness. This is who they are. This is what they're about. And it becomes ingrained into who we are. I know that for me, this is, I'm far from this. Like I need this as much as anybody in here does. But that's what he's saying God wants. And like I want to I wanna honor God. I want to give him what he wants. To have this lifestyle of, of showing unexpected kindness to people who the world thinks don't deserve it, doesn't deserve it. I think about this, I think of... Um, this girl that I was friends with in, in high school, senior in high school, um, very, she was like, I mean, she had, she was everything, had everything on her resume that people would want. Um, she was in her homecoming court. She was the prom queen her senior year, played lacrosse, played field hockey, student government, student council, all these things. But everybody loved her. Um, friends with all the people on the football team, all the cheerleaders. But I think what was the most endearing about this this person to everybody who knew her was that she got along as well with the football players as she did with the mentally handicapped person in her school. And she spent as much time with the people who would win the praises of everybody, that would win the superlatives in their yearbook, spent as much time with those people as she did with the people that others would consider to be the losers in the bottom of the totem pole. 
In other words, every person that she saw, she didn't categorize them as this is the popular people. These are the people that are, are geeky. These are the people that are dorky. These are the people that will um, up my social status. Nothing like that. It's every person that she saw, she treated each and every single one of them as if they were all tens. And I thought, wow, what an amazing way to live. There's no pretense, nothing that you need to gain from anybody else. Not using people in any way, just seeing them for who they are. For who they are, a person of dignity made in the image of God. Not giving more attention to the loud people. Not giving more attention to the quiet. Just, just treating everybody as if they really were made in the image of God. What would that look like? What would that look like? First of all, in here, begin to treat everybody the way that you treat the person you treat the best in here. And as that begins to happen in here, what would that look like as that begins to happen out there? The person that everybody makes fun of, the coworker that everybody likes to gossip about. And they're always the one who's eating by themselves when the group goes out. What would it look like if we were to love mercy? The, the person in your school that everybody picks on. They're the most popular person in school because they're the most despised person in school. If you were to treat them differently, or if you were to treat them differently than everybody else does, but you were to treat them the same way that you treat your best friend, what would begin to happen? And when this, this gal in, in, in our high school treated people like that, she was taking the dignity and the divine imprint that God had placed within her that had been robbed by other people, and she was restoring that back to them. And all around our high school, people were beginning to have this sense of, I'm not what everybody says I am. Because this person loved mercy. See, mercy and justice fail when we create this dichotomy between me, us, and those people. Like I'm at a so higher social level than they are, therefore I have the right to look at them differently. Or they're of a different peer group. And I'm in this group of people who, I'm, the, I'm in the Asian group. They're not. And so I treat them differently. What if that began to change? And we, we begin to, to, to break down these barriers. See, justice and mercy fail when we exclude others from the community of humanity. And we exclude ourselves from the community of the needy. But when we realize that everybody is made in the image of God, like we're all, we're all in the same boat here. And then we realize that I am no less needy than the rest of the people in the world. Begin to see each other with new eyes begin to move towards one another in love. To act justly, to love mercy. And then the last thing, to walk humbly with your God. The last, the last thought I want to give here is that all this is impossible unless we walk humbly with our God. 
What do I mean by this? I'll be honest with you. Two-thirds of this command is being fulfilled by a great majority of society in some way. You know this, right? Um, Angelina Jolie is a spokesperson for orphans, right? Bono, all these people out there, everybody's doing it. I went, I went up to uh, Boston a few years back with, uh, with Olivia. We're hanging out on the campus of, of MIT watching fireworks and just mingling with people. Some people from Harvard were there. And, and all these folks, and I was just asking them, hey, what do you, what do you want to do with your life? And to a T, almost every single one of them said, I want to go into nonprofits. I want to do some humanitarian work. I want to do some kind of relief work. And then I was like, I was just blown away that these brilliant minds are wanting to engage themselves in this kind of work. Not that it's bad or anything, but I just, it just, I couldn't understand it. And then I read a book by Tim Keller called Generous Justice, and he says, um, there's this uh, journal called Nonprofit Times, and he says, we are at the pinnacle of social justice in our world. This is all, it's a fad. It's fashionable. It's trendy to be involved in humanitarian efforts, isn't it? Whether you're a believer, follower of Jesus Christ or not, everybody wants to help somebody. And by helping somebody, everybody wants to be a somebody. Hey, two-thirds of this command, to do justice and to love mercy, people are doing it whatever uh, religious background you come from. But here's what Keller says. These studies have been done. They say volunteerism is spiking in our generation because of college students and, and single, single people. There's the other flip side of that. Two things that are on the flip side of that is that one, they're passionate seemingly about justice, but it doesn't affect any of the way they live their lives. It doesn't affect the jobs that they choose, how they spend their money, how they spend their time, what they do with their free time, the kind of people that they hang out with. He says, in other words, this desire for justice and mercy to, to be seen as a good person is there, but it's fighting against a consumeristic mentality that does not want them to sacrifice for the sake of other people. And so what happens, the second thing that happens is that they get involved in these things, but it's very short-lived. A year, two years, three years, and then it's done. And they go on to doing the other things that they want to do with their life. And I will guarantee you that when Micah 6, 8 talks about this and all the other prophets talk about this, he's not just talking about a one-time thing, a two-year thing, a three-year thing. He's talking about a lifestyle of honoring God in this way. So much so that it affects the choices that we make. It affects everything about the way that we live life. That's why these things are impossible unless we walk humbly with our God. You think about the lasting changes that have happened in our world. All the things that were wrong that have been righted in our world. Throughout the ages, you think about these things. Where did hospitals come from? came from this idea where Jesus says in Matthew 25, he says, I was sick. And you visited me. And so the followers of Jesus Christ gathered all these sick people together in one place so that somebody who was expertise and trained in this area could take care of all the sick people. And in so doing, they were taking care of, in their mind, they were taking care of Jesus as they took care of these sick people. Where did the idea of universities come from, of schools come from? It came when Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, to obey everything I've commanded you. And it was the people of God who said, people can't read and write. How can they learn? And so they gathered people together and they started teaching them, translating into their own language, creating languages for some people, 
the civil rights movement, slavery, the abolition of slavery. It wasn't just a, a, a general desire for, hey, the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. We got to take care of each other. It wasn't. It was when people like Martin Luther King Jr. and other people heard the prophet's voices, let justice roll down like rivers, and they said, we need to do something about this. We can't let this be in the hands of the government. We can't let this be in the hands of other people. We need to take ownership over this. And throughout the, 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 the ages, it has always been the people of God taking ownership over these things. And now the ball has landed squarely in our court to look at all that is wrong in our culture, to look at all that is wrong in our world, and to say, what will we do about it? You see, the only reason this can happen, the only way this is possible, lasting change is possible, is if a group of people are walking humbly with God. Why do I say that? Here's why. Because when we engage in justice, and when we engage in mercy, at the very heart of it, this is what we're doing. We are seeking to give an advantage to other people at expense to ourselves. Let me put it a little bit more simply. When we engage in a lifestyle of justice and mercy, we are advantaging other people by disadvantaging ourselves. But how in the world can you continue to do this? How can anyone continue to disadvantage themselves so that others might be advantaged? We can't. The only way that this is going to be possible is if as you are disadvantaging yourself, somebody else is coming alongside and pouring advantage into your life. At the beginning of verse 8, God says, He has showed you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? You see, God is so deeply passionate about justice and mercy, that he would fully throw himself into the battle to combat and to fight injustice. You see, Jesus, everything about his death, everything beginning at the last, everything beginning at the last supper was a complete miscarriage of justice. He was betrayed by one of his 11, one of his 12 closest friends for 30 pieces of silver. This trial, there was no public notification of the trial, which in and of itself would have thrown the trial out and rendered it completely bogus. A kangaroo court. This was done at night. No, no trial was ever to be conducted at night. It was always to be done during the day. There was, again, no public notice. There was no opportunity for Jesus to defend himself. Everything about this trial, Pontius Pilate, the one who sentenced him to be crucified, knew that he was an innocent man and yet still condemned him to be crucified. And in between two prisoners, Jesus Christ gave up his life. You see, Jesus Christ was the ultimate victim of injustice so that he could show to all the world that he understands what it means to identify with the unjust. He knows what it is to identify with the poor. He knows what it is to identify with the helpless. He knows what it is to identify with the people who've been unfairly tried, who've been thrown into prison innocently. He knows all of these things. And the ultimate one who came to bring justice to this world did it 
by becoming a victim of the ultimate injustice. And by becoming a victim of that injustice, we see the heart of God, the God of justice, who then calls us to mirror and to reflect that heart for the people, to the people of this world. And he places that squarely on the shoulders of those who call ourselves children of this Father. Let's pray together. As we think about this, this is some pretty meaty stuff here. And again, if you remember, if you remember watching Hotel Rwanda where the genocide in Rwanda was being publicized on the news and finally it was getting airtime and finally people were beginning to hear about it and finally there was this sense of, hey, we're not fighting this struggle alone and, and two people are eating dinner together watching this on the news and one of them, the optimist says, great, finally people will come and they will send us help. And then the other one, the realist, says, or they will look at it. They'll say, that's too bad. They'll turn off the TV and they'll go back to eating dinner. As we hear the heartbeat of God through the words of the prophet Micah, We will respond in one of two ways, and there's really no middle ground. One is to say, this is great. I need to do something about this. God, move me into action. And there are others who for a moment will have been stirred in their hearts over something that was spoken and say, that's too bad. And we'll go back to living life the way that we had lived before we walked in here. Let's take a moment to respond to God's word and, and say, Lord, help me. Help me to take this word to heart, to think about what it means and to think about what my part is in this. That 50 years later when my grandchildren asked me, Grandpa, Grandma, what did you do about the explosion of human trafficking in your day, in your time, when you had money, when you had resources, when you had energy to do something, what did you do about it? Let's choose today to live in such a way that we would have an answer that inspires later. Let's pray together. Spend a few moments in, in praying to the Lord.
And as those who have been baptized or confirmed in a moment are going to be invited to the Lord's table, Jesus says that we need to come and to come in a way, in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. And so if there's any offensive way, if there are sins within our hearts that we are hiding and holding on to, that we are living and have made a regular routine in our lives, God's asking us, will you let that go in exchange for all that I have for you? If there are things that we've done that might, might hinder our, our communion with God right now, maybe an argument with a family member, maybe a, ig- ignoring an injustice, maybe it's something, a way in which we have been a perpetrator of injustice or ways in which we've turned a blind eye to the needs of people around us. Let's confess that to the Lord. Let's pray and, and ask the Lord that he would clear our conscience through the shed blood of Jesus Christ so that we might be able to come with a clear heart, with a clear mind as we approach the table of grace. Let's spend a, another minute or so just praying and, and confessing anything that we need to before the Lord so that we can come with a clear mind and a clear conscience to the table of grace. Let's continue in our praise in that way. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you so much for your word that speaks into our lives. Father, sometimes we like it for the promises and the comfort that it brings, but God, just quite honestly, sometimes we don't like it because it pushes against us and it presses against the way we live and it forces us to examine ourselves to see if we're living according to the plumb line of your word. And, and a lot of times we realize, man, our lives are, are far away from the way that you have called us and asked us to live. And, and that's hard to see. And it's even harder to surrender ourselves to change. But Father, we know that at the same time, there's an open door that obedience takes us through that fills us with joy and with life and with peace and causes our lives to excite and to bless other people as well. Father, when we live lives of selfishness that are centered around ourselves, that our deepest happiness is found in ourselves, but when we begin to live outwardly for others, then our deepest joy can be multiplied as it is found in the joy of others. Teach us the joy of giving, the joy of justice, the joy of mercy, the joy of giving even when we think we can't give anymore, to know that you will not stop giving us because we can never outgive you. Help us, O Lord God. Thank you so much. We love you. We need you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.